In this weekend's episode, three segments from this past week's Washington Journal. First, pastor and political scientist Ryan Burge discusses the rise in religious nuns, that's N-O-N-E-S, people who don't identify with any religion and the impact this group could have on campaign 2024. Then a conversation about the ongoing fentanyl crisis in the U.S. with journalist Sam Quinones, author of the book The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Plus, CQ Roll Call reporter Chris Marquette discusses the uptick in so-called swatting attacks on members of Congress. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And I'm Sean, a C-SPAN producer, and we'd like to tell you about Word for Word, our evening newsletter that I write each day. If you follow politics and policy, we think you'll also like reading Word for Word. Think of it as your evening briefing on Washington's most important stories delivered straight to your inbox. Find out what happened on Capitol Hill, the White House, and see video highlights. Join our informed community. Subscribe to Word for Word today at cspan.org slash connect. Go deeper on the day's important stories. Subscribe now to Word for Word at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Now, pastor and Eastern Illinois University political science professor Ryan Burge. A new poll from the Pew Research Center found more than one quarter of adults in the United States are religiously unaffiliated, also known as religious nuns. Professor Burge studies this group and their impact on politics. Who is a nun? Yeah, Greta, a nun is someone who, on a survey, they say they have no religious affiliation. So uh, I categorize them as people that say they're atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. That's actually what they check on the survey. Their religion is nothing in particular. In 1972, 5% of Americans were nuns. Uh, in 1991, it had only risen to 7%, so statistically pretty insignificant. But from 1991 onward, the nuns have just continued to increase and increase and increase. Today, almost 30% of all American adults are nuns amongst Generation Z, which are people born 1996 or later. It's over 40% are nuns. Uh, I argue that it's the largest cultural shift we've seen in America over the last 50 years, and it's having implications on every aspect of American society. What do these people believe in? It, it really runs the gamut from uh, they don't believe in anything spiritual to lots of them do believe in some type of spirituality. So there are some atheists who just don't believe in a soul. They don't believe in an afterlife, so no heaven or hell. They don't believe in the concepts like evil and good. Um, but there's also a lot of nuns who are sort of dabbling in different types of spirituality. So things like tarot cards and Ouija boards and crystals and meditation and yoga. Some nuns actually go to church on a semi-regular basis. For instance, amongst a nothing in particular group, about 33% of them say religion is somewhat important to them. So, you know, it runs the gamut from I don't like religion, I don't want religion in my life, to I am not religious in a traditional sense, like I'm not Protestant or Catholic or Muslim, but I still feel spiritual and I still feel a connection to God in some way. What do they believe about the role of science? So, Amongst atheists and agnostics, we call those people secular people, which means they've thrown off a religious worldview 
and they've replaced it with a secular worldview, which tends to focus on things like science and rationality. So many atheist agnostics will tell you that science is the best way to understand the world, and really they follow things like logic and reason. They believe that's the way that we should get through life. Now, the nothing in particular group, we call them non-religious because they've thrown off the religious worldview, but they haven't replaced it with anything else. So sort of halfway on the science side, halfway on the secular side, halfway on the religious side at the same time. So it's really hard to understand sort of how these nothing in particular folks, you know, think about things like, you know, philosophy and epistemology. They're really sort of floating in in theological and spiritual space. You wrote, as we said, the title of the book is The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. Where did they come from? So they really, at the beginning, was only one type of person who became a nun. It was a lot of white people, a lot of educated white people became nuns. But, you know, you don't get to be 30% of the population by just being one thing. So now the nuns are really coming from every aspect of American society. It's both women and men. Actually, they're 50% women, 50% men at this point. They're coming from not just the white community, but also the African-American, Latino, Asian, and other communities. Uh, it used to be almost all were liberals or left-of-center Democrats who became nuns. Now we're seeing a rising number of conservative nuns or Republican nuns. Um, so it's coming... It used to be, you know, places like in New England and the Pacific Northwest uh, were becoming nuns. But now we're seeing, you know, 25 or 30 percent of people living in states like Iowa and Nebraska are non-religious. So it's they're coming from every possible aspect of American society, every partisanship, every race, every gender, and every age, too, by the way. This is not just a young person phenomenon. If you look at every generation, they are more likely to be nuns today than in 2008. So it's really across the board. They're coming from every facet of American society. Have people just never joined a church or is it that people are leaving a church or a faith? It's, it's both. I think that's a really important point to understand the nuns. Um, back in people born in the 1950s, only 3% of them said they grew up in a non-religious household. Today, amongst young people, about 15% say they're growing up in a non-religious household. But that means for everyone who was raised nun, another person becomes a nun at some point in their life. The other thing that's helping the nuns is that it used to be that two-thirds of people raised nuns became religious as adults. Now, two-thirds who are raised nuns stay nuns as adults. So they're actually doing a better job in retaining their own, the nuns are, than who've ever done. Actually better than a lot of uh, religious traditions, including the Catholic Church. But they're also converting people who are leaving religion behind. So they're kind of, they're from a religious perspective, a religious demography perspective, everything is moving in their direction. Every trend is positive for the nuns. Retention is high, but they're also bringing a lot of people into conversion as well. Why? Why are people remaining nuns? Why hasn't the church been as successful as they have in the past of recruiting more members as people get older? Yeah, so I think a lot of it is We've destigmatized what it means to be non-religious in America. Uh, if you think about someone who was born, let's say, in Mississippi in the 1940s uh, and is an atheist, they might live and die and never tell a soul that they're an atheist because it can make them lose their job. It can have them kicked out of their family. They could lose their spouse. They could lose. They could be ostracized socially. Um, but now, if you're a nun born in Mississippi in 1995. 
you can go on the internet and Google, you know, Atheists of Mississippi and find a Facebook group or a subreddit or some type of online community where you feel like you're not alone. And I think for a lot of people, they were nuns in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. They just didn't want to admit it to anyone else because of all the stigma and all the ostracization that comes with being a nun. So now I think the internet has allowed people to be more honest um, with who they are personally, but also when they take surveys, they're being more honest now because it used to be almost all surveys were either in person or over the phone, and now they're online, and uh, people are a lot more honest when they take a survey by looking at a web, web browser instead of taking a survey, you know, looking at another person in the face. So I think that stigma has gone down, and people are just more happy now not being part of a religious tradition and saying that on surveys. That was Ryan Burge, pastor and political science professor at Eastern Illinois University. Next, a conversation about the fentanyl and opioid epidemic in the United States. We're joined now by Sam Quinones. He's the author of the book called The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Sam, welcome to the program. Thanks very much for having me. I want to put uh, something up on the screen, uh, kind of just talking about the the scale of this uh, fentanyl problem. Sure. Um, this is uh, the sources from NPR, but it says overdoses claim more than 112,000 American lives from May 2022 to May 2023. That's according to the CDC. It's a 37% increase compared with the 12 month period ending in May 2020. The vast majority mm-hmm. of those who died were adults, but drug overdoses are killing young Americans in unprecedented numbers. The monthly total rose from 31 in July 2019 to 87 in May 2021. What's going on? Why is, is what, what's causing this rise in popularity of fentanyl? Oh, I would say the supply is just inundated the country, most of it from, from Mexico, being made illicitly. And fentanyl is a legal drug uh, used very effectively in surgeries. I've had fentanyl in uh, surgery. Uh, myself, but when it's in the hands of of uh, trafficking world in Mexico, who is able to get quantities of ingredients to then to make fentanyl, you have uh, a combustible uh, combination there. And what's happened is over the last several years, the the traffickers in Mexico have been able to to make it in just staggering quantities. So much so that fentanyl is now uh, nation nationwide. It used to be when it first came to this country illicitly in the last, uh, say, 2013, 14. It was mostly congregating in the states where, uh, 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 f- where the opioid epidemic began, uh, Ohio, West Virginia. But since then, it is really just pretty much all over, over the country. And it's the deadliest drug we've ever seen on our streets uh, by it's, quite it's, a bit. Fentanyl is synthetic. So it's a synthetic drug made only with made- chemicals. In, and in a lab, a, and you don't yeah. need to grow it, you don't need to do anything like that. No and that, plant that makes it cheaper. That makes it cheaper, easier to make, and also, crucially, um, easier to smuggle because of it's a highly potent, so a smaller amount will make you staggering uh, profits. And so that's one of several reasons. These are among several reasons why, why traffickers have figured out that this is a bonanza drug, lottery-type winnings. Uh, uh, from, from, from this drug. And so you are finding that, that traffickers, dealers, really all across the country, um, have been putting it into other drugs, cocaine being a main one, 
methamphetamine. I wanted to ask you about that. Why is it being mixed with other chemicals? Because, well, first of all, again, it drugs. has all of this is about supply, in my opinion. There's so much of it coming into Mex- from Mexico that you get this, it kind of mixed in with uh, people have figured out on the street, have figured out if you mix it into these other drugs, it'll boost the potency of those drugs. Plus, crucially, I think is very important to understand, if you don't kill the customer first, that customer will then develop a tolerance and become a fentanyl addict and will then be a, 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 a daily aggressive customer. Um, whereas maybe a person who's using cocaine may use uh, once or twice a week, maybe once or twice a month even, now they become daily users. So it's also, as much as it does kill people, it is also kind of a customer expansion tool on the part of local local dealers. And this is something that, that local dealers all across the country um, have, have figured out. A good number of them also are selling fentanyl to maintain their fentanyl <laughs> habit. You know, it's, it's part, of, part of the whole drug world as you sell to make, make the money that you, uh, make the drugs that you, you, you don't want to spend your own money on. And so you've, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of an ecosystem of vendors and so on that's that all across the country, but fentanyl has now aced out or outcompeted Heroin. If you are addicted to to fentanyl, there's um, no chance that heroin will be taking care of your your withdrawal symptoms. Most people are using to keep their withdrawal symptoms away when they're addicted, and and so. If, so as far as addiction goes, fentanyl is easier to get addicted to than other illicit drugs, and it and it's harder to get off of. Well, because the supply is so vast and so relentless. It takes people's tolerances up very, very high. And what that means is the withdrawals are beastly. They're just demonic. And so getting off of it then becomes very, very difficult. And that is, uh, but again, all this is kind of related to the vast amounts of fentanyl uh, coming in from, uh, from, from Mexico. Speaking of supply, you wrote a, an opinion piece for The Washington Post with this headline, The Fentanyl Crisis is Being Driven by Supply, Not Demand. This is a, um, a, a common belief that, look, if there was no market in the U.S., if there were no users, there would be no fentanyl problem. Yes, and I think uh, that has been true in, other, in, in the past, perhaps, but I think with fentanyl, I think with all opioids, really, um, opioids change our brain chemistry. They, they make, it, make us physically addicted to them. And so it's, it's a common idea in the opioid bending world that, you know, once someone starts on it, pretty soon that person becomes a very big uh, customer. And so the demand, essential demand, is starts with, with supply. With fentanyl, you're seeing this in 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 very exaggerated way. I mean, fentanyl, very quickly, again, if it doesn't kill you, and many people die from it right off the bat, this is another part, that's another part of the story. But once you've had fentanyl and you've had it a couple of three times, you get very addicted. You get addicted very quickly and very quickly your tolerance rises. And and that is why we're seeing also on the street um, across the country, I would say, people offered services, offered treatment. We have a treatment bed for you. You're going to die on the street, leaving apart, say, lethal temperatures and all the rest, the violence of the street. Fentanyl is going to kill you and people still don't accept treatment because they're terrified of being away from the drug. I had a drug counselor at a conference recently tell me, my clients are afraid of two things. One, they're afraid of dying from fentanyl because they know 
the longer you stay on the street, the more you, you, you're going you're gonna to die. No one survives really long term. The other thing they're afraid of is being away from fentanyl. It's a, it's, you know, it's a terrible, terrible thing. And, and, and uh, because fentanyl, like all opioids, changes the brain chemistry so dramatically, kind of squelches that basic instinct for survival that we all possess. We need to, al- to live. Every animal has it. But on opioids in particular now, on, particularly now on, on fentanyl, you find that, that people are, are just uh, terrified of being away uh, from fentanyl, even though they know it's going to kill them. That was journalist Sam Quinones, author of the book The Least of Us, True Tales of America and Hope in the Time of Fentanyl and Meth. Next, CQ Roll Call reporter Chris Marquette discusses the current threat environment for members of Congress, the challenges it poses for Capitol Police and local law enforcement. So I want to start with a um, uh, your, your article here in Roll Call has this headline, Surge in False Swatting Calls Adds to Lawmaker Security Concerns. House Sergeant-at-Arms recommends members contact local law enforcement about hoax emergency calls. Can you remind us about uh, what swatting is and what's going on? Yeah, so swatting is a, a, a increasing trend uh, that's been happening recently. Uh, it's a phenomenon in which uh, people, uh, bad actors, um, will uh, call in an, a fake 911 call to induce uh, at a member's house. Uh, in this case, we wrote the story about swatting on members of Congress. Uh, and there have been since Christmas, there's there have been uh, 34 members of Congress who have been the target of swatting incidents. And uh, what these uh, what these people do is they call in fake 911 calls to the members address, um, you know, sometimes using AI with fake uh, screams and glass shattering in the background uh, in order to induce a uh, large law enforcement uh, response uh, with, you know, perhaps a SWAT team or or. Uh, uh, officers uh, descending on the house with guns drawn. um, And that's why they have the term swatting because, you know, the SWAT teams come in usually. And this is certainly a concern on multiple levels. I mean, given uh, the the heightened uh, sense of uh, danger, there's guns involved. There is um, also the the chance of this, you know, being the, the boy that cried wolf, right? So when there is an actual emergency, law enforcement might not respond as quickly? Is that is that a possibility? Yeah. So um, I, I talked to uh, my, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a member from 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 Georgia, has actually been swatted eight times. And if you include her family, there's been 11 swatting incidents that she's encountered uh, since 2022. And the first time that um, there was a swatting call at her house, she said that um, uh, law enforcement came to our house with guns drawn, and you know, luckily, it 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 didn't end up in a in a tragic uh, event. But it's it's a scary it's a scary incident, uh, nonetheless. Uh, and then uh, recently, over the weekend, uh, there were uh, two publicly reported uh, uh, cases uh, in which uh, Eric Burleson, a, a, a representative from Missouri, and then Tom Emmer, uh, a member of leadership. Uh, were both swatted over the weekend, and uh, I spoke with Burleson, and he he talked about how um, the call was placed into uh, Ozark County, but he lives in Ozark, which is a city in Christian County. So initially, um, they knew that 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 there was something up because somebody who was actually from the area would have known the difference between the two counties. But um, actually, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene and a bunch of members were swatted over uh, over over Christmas, and 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 that that was a uh, you know very prominent in the news. So as a proactive measure, actually, uh, Burleson reached out to the the House Sergeant at Arms has encouraged members to reach out to their local law enforcement um, uh, departments and and say hey. You know, have a conversation with them, say, hey, this is my emergency contact number. This is my address. If you get any calls, uh, swatting has been an issue, you know, reach out to us uh, and 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 make sure to validate uh, so that uh, in the case of, you know, if it is, in fact, a swatting incident like it was with Burleson over the weekend, that law enforcement response is not at a 10 uh, with guns blazing in in Burleson's case, it was it was two squad cars that came down, and you know they they had a hunch that it was swatting because of the the county discrepancy that I referenced earlier. But um, at the same time, it's a tough it's a tough uh, area to balance. It's a tough line to toe because you know what are you going to do? Like you know not send the cops, and and then if there's an incident where it's it's really um, an emergency you still want that law enforcement response. So so it, it's a tough line to toe, but I think uh, you saw it work out, you know, as well as it can with Burleson uh, because it was a tempered law enforcement response. They still came, they vetted it. Uh, but at the end of the day, it is, it is, um, it is sucking up, um, you know, valuable law enforcement resources that sh- that shouldn't be have to be diverted to that. But, you know, it's that's that's the crux of the issue there. And Chris, what what is currently in place to protect members, if anything? Yeah, so they have uh, a ten thousand uh, dollar pool of money that the House Sergeant Arms makes um, makes available to House lawmakers. And in that they can use it uh, for home uh, to bolster their home security uh, monitoring. Uh, there's actually a hundred fifty dollar a month um uh, uh, amount of money that 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 they can use for for home monitoring. Uh, so th- there are opportunities to to do that, and they also have out of that pool of money, you can use that on cybersecurity. Uh, so the House Sergeant Arms works with you, Capitol Police works with you on on those fronts. Uh, they they do home assessments and and things of that nature. Uh, and then um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you can proactive if you want to, you can proactively reach out to the locals and and tell them, hey, this is my address, just so you know, uh, this has been going on. And uh, yeah, so that's I mean, those are really kind of the issues. And then uh, the Capitol Police and local law enforcement and the FBI um, really kind of are tasked with tracking down these 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 people who are making the calls, but it, they're really hard to find. They're really hard to prosecute and bring to justice because a lot of them are coming from overseas. They're using uh, VPNs, things of that nature. And um, it's just it, it's a difficult thing to track down and and, and bring to justice. But, uh, you know, they're 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 doing what they can. And just over the weekend, actually, after the Emmer and the um, Burleson incident, the House Sergeant at Arms sent out, um, you know, a, a reminder to members basically outlining what I just what I just said. That was Chris Marquette, congressional accountability reporter for CQ Roll Call. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app or on C-SPAN television live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern time. <laughs> 